Hi, and welcome to our fourth Universalist service video. My name is Ember Kelly, and I am the Director of Religious Education here at the Fourth Universalist Society. I use she and her pronouns, and thank you so much for joining us today. What follows are selections from our service on February 27th, 2022. In this video, you will hear the reading and the reflection. Following that, we hope you'll join us for a lively discussion where we go deeper into the service themes together. You're invited to check out our video and audio podcast each week. We post it on our website, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, as well as many of your favorite podcast streaming sites. If you like what you see, we do hope that you'll give us a positive review. The likes, the comments, the sharing, subscribing, this helps spread Fourth Universalist media further. Finally, we acknowledge that our community is located on the land of the Munsei Lenape peoples. With this acknowledgement, we seek to continue the process of working to dismantle the ongoing legacies of oppression. We invite you to join us in this work as we embrace the A2U principle. Thank you again for watching. We begin with our reading. Our reading this morning is an excerpt from a book by a dear friend of Fourth U, the Reverend Nate Walker. In his book, Cultivating Empathy, Nate says this. Over a period of several months in 1960 in New Orleans, child psychologist Robert Coles spoke with Ruby Bridges a six-year-old African-American who was threatened and taunted by people who opposed her enrollment in a segregated school. She told Coles that she felt sorry for the people who are trying to kill her. He clarified, you feel sorry for them? Well, don't you think they need feeling sorry for, she said. Later, he wrote, I sat there stunned. I was applying standard psychology to try to help her realize that she was maybe angry at these people and bitter and anxious. And she was telling me that she prayed for them. I was struck dumb and I was silent because I had to reflect on this child's wisdom. Cole spent his career listening to people's wisdom and sharing his own, writing more than 60 books. One of these books, Nate says, influenced my life. The Call of Stories, Teaching and Moral Imagination. His writings taught about the power of storytelling. Both fictional stories and true ones teach that the human capacity to have empathy for one another is not simply a creative impulse, but a moral one. Nate says, his writings led me to study the variety of ways that people have used the term moral imagination. He says that he particularly appreciates how doctors at the University of Kansas School of Medicine define it as, and I quote, the ability to anticipate or project oneself into the middle 
of a moral dilemma or conflict and understand all the points of view. End quote. Nate continues, understanding does not necessarily mean agreement. I may disagree with your point of view, but often my disagreement prevents me from understanding the true untainted nature of your standpoint. If I never demonstrate that I understand you, that, then I cannot expect you to understand me. Understanding is a type of sympathetic awareness of another. Even more powerful is mutual understanding between two or more people. The fertile soil in which the moral imagination is planted and peace is grown. Our moral duty, therefore, is to till our understanding for one another and plant our words and actions as the seeds of ethical empathy. Failure to do so creates misperceptions and misunderstandings, which are the roots of conflict, stereotyping, and violence. The antidote to these aggressions is to cultivate mutual understanding, plant seeds of the moral imagination, and hopefully reap peaceful coexistence. Here ends our reading. Thank you, Jill. I have to admit that I had a hard time writing today's sermon. I started early in the week, and actually, if I'm really honest, I started putting ideas together months ago. I've long loved this reading from Reverend Nate, and my daughter shared another reading with me. So it took me a while. And then I started piecing my ideas together with some more research. And then Putin invaded Ukraine and that, on top of so many other news items that just kind of crushed me, took away my focus. I found my mind spinning with the same question. How, not why, how do some people act so badly? Since my theme today is empathy, that question became more desperate. How can some people do unspeakably horrible things like declare war on a sovereign nation or bulldoze homes in a part of the world and take over locations or tell citizens of their state to report parents of trans children to family services? My inner biologist wanted a glimpse inside their brains to find out what is different with their wiring that they seemingly have no compassion, no empathy, no sense of human understanding. So yeah, I was stuck. I started theorizing too, but that's for another conversation. So then, thankfully, I had a fun little chat with our very own member, Jude. Jude is eight years old, by the way. We were talking about Star Wars on Friday in the context of how we welcome people into our Fourth U community. And Jude started talking about the Jedi and how Jedis have a real sense of how to treat people. Jedis fight for the good of all 
to keep evil and strife at bay. Jedis know themselves and know what is right. And then Jude reminded me of how some Jedi turned to the dark side, that even though they knew what was right, they chose differently. After we ended our Zoom call and I thanked Jude for saving my sermon, I found myself then thinking about what it is that makes some people feel the pain of others and seek to alleviate it and why others seem not to care. And thankfully, I was already poised to talk about empathy. So here goes. Now, I like to think of myself as a person who cares. I've been called sensitive for most of my life like it was a bad thing. Anyone else get called sensitive? Like a lot? So when I was a kid, I was told I was too sensitive. Maybe I was too sensitive or maybe I was just anxious or uptight. But I think in reality, I was and am sensitive because I feel the world deeply. But no one, no one ever had that conversation with me when I was a child. No one really talked to me about my feelings and what they meant or what I could do with them. Now I've learned over the years that sensitive does not necessarily equal empathic. We throw the word empath around, but we really have to think about it. But if sensitive shows up as feeling deeply or feeling how others feel, then there is a connection or a starting point maybe. Sensitive folks often connect with others through a sense of compassion. And in the religious world, we talk a lot about compassion. Now, according to sociologist Brene Brown, Dr. Brene Brown, compassion, in her words, is the daily practice of recognizing and accepting our shared humanity so that we treat ourselves and others with loving kindness and we take action in the face of suffering. She makes it clear to point out that compassion is not pity or it's not a, you know, let me help you because I know better. Compassion then for me is an acknowledgement of our divine interconnectedness. Dr. Brene Brown links compassion to empathy though in this way. She says, empathy the most powerful tool of compassion is an emotional skill set that allows us to understand what someone is experiencing and to reflect back that understanding. She adds, we can only respond empathically if we are willing to be present to someone's pain. If we are not willing to do that, it's not real empathy. So where does empathy come from? Are we born this way? According to Claire Stacy, a professor at Kent State, empathy, she says, is not an innate trait or a moral disposition, but a skill that can be cultivated. Simply believing empathy is a skill rather than a fixed trait increases the likelihood that people will work harder to empathize. 
We can seek out tools to engage in perspective taking, arguably the core component of empathic engagement. So of course, I wanna think about how do we build this empathy muscle. Professor Ken puts forth a rather simple idea to use our sociological imagination. Simply using our sociological imagination invites us to consider context. Much like what we talked about during my peace education sermon, no one exists in a vacuum. We all live in and are impacted by the structures and institutions of society. And we all are, as the Buddhists would say, the products of our conditioning. So what does that mean? When someone is behaving in a certain way or saying things that may be upsetting to us, it is easy to write them off as bad or someone I don't want to have a relationship with or they don't know anything. Basically, it's really easy to be judgmental. And I know we've all done that, myself included. However, if we stop ourselves from prejudging or judging or reacting and take a moment, we can, in essence, put ourselves into the other person's shoes that we've talked about already. We can look at their individual behavior in the context of their social realities, societal structures, cultural background, family history, community issues, relationship to global issues, and on and on. Their opinions, words, and actions are most likely deeply informed by their conditioning, which comes from their positionality in the world around them. For us to do this, however, does require effort. It is far easier to just place someone in a box and disengage. It is much more difficult to take the time, especially right in that moment, to get a greater understanding of that person's life and thus their perspective. Now I am not saying at all that we should let harmful words and deeds slide. This is not a free pass to be terrible and hurtful. We have to call that stuff out. But there are ways to call people out that shut things down and ways to do it that might open a conversation. This concept of the sociological imagination comes from sociologist C. Wright Mills, who introduced it in 1959. Although I do wanna add a little sidebar to make it clear that in many cultures around the world, especially non-punitive indigenous cultures, his way of thinking was in fact the norm. So perhaps for the patriarchal capitalist competitive lot, his idea needed to be codified and introduced. He defined the social, sociological imagination thusly. The quality of mind essential to grasp the interplay of human and society, of biography and history, of self and the world. Basically, the sociological imagination is the ability to see the social patterns that influence individuals, families, groups, and organizations. 
It includes an awareness of the relationship between the individual and the wider society, both today and in the past. And to understand personal troubles in a context connected to social forces and social problems. Wright Mills also talks about one of my favorite concepts, root causes. He believes that the sociological imagination calls us to look at root causes of structures, of issues, of institutions, and not limit our perspective to an individual view. Individual problems in need of individual solutions, but rather seeing an individual problem as having roots in structural issues, which then requires us to think about structural responses to solutions. At its core, the sociological imagination encourages, encourages us to place individual troubles in the context of broader public issues. Another author, Jenny Justice, great name by the way, paraphrases the power of Mill's writing, Mill's concept in this way. She says, as a tool, the sociological imagination allows us to more readily appreciate the reality of another person, a key step in the cultivation of empathy. It manifests as a willingness to ask questions about why someone acts or believes as they do, and to then seek out reliable information to answer those questions. Information that can be gleaned from educators, journalists, or even from the mouths directly of those in question. She considers, she con continues, sorry, putting yourself in someone else's shoes must be carried out with intention and purpose. It takes work and commitment and a willingness to hold judgment in abeyance as you seek greater understanding of the context that informs a, a person's life. She is cautious to add, it is not, however, blind altruism. Empathy does not mean accepting or excusing racism, sexism, homophobia, cruelty, and unkindness. Empathy does mean understanding the context of individual actions and beliefs while simultaneously holding people accountable. Has a real third principle connection there. So simply, in order to be truly empathic, we have to be able to take on the perspective of others. And I recognize that in today's political climate, that feels very hard to do. But here's some interesting stuff. Psychologist Paul Bloom has found that oftentimes empathy reinforces solidarity with those who are most like us. We assume that empathy will connect us to others, especially others who are not like us. And we've already started to talk about that as a practice, but it's not necessarily true. Our empathic skills get used for tribalism. We often care more about folks who think and act like us, and thus, as a result, we can actually become close-minded and practice othering. Another researcher, Elizabeth Simas, found that the more empathic a person is, the more politically partisan they are. Now, I find this very interesting <laughs> for myself, for my research, and also for us well-meaning, liberal, progressive UUs. 
it's a reminder that empathy is neither boundless nor is it necessarily egalitarian. We hit walls. Arlie Hochschild calls it an empathy wall, an obstacle to deep understanding of another person, one that can make us feel indifferent or even hostile to those who hold different beliefs or whose childhood is rooted in different circumstances. We also hit wells. Empathy can also bleed us dry. If we feel compassion and empathy for others, but cannot act on it for any number of reasons, or we or are the recipient of, or we put the burden of empathic work on others, and historically this has meant caregivers or mothers or women in general, empathy can exhaust and overwhelm us. So when I think of all these things together, I realize that empathy is clearly an ongoing learning, a process of learning, unlearning, practicing, imagining, evolving, and self-reflecting. It is a skill that needs constant cultivation, a garden, if you will. Now, our reading by Reverend Nate shows us that empathy is possible in even the most horrific uh, settings, right? Or in experiences. And that is what can ground us into understanding. Because, because through understanding someone, if we do the work, we can connect and hopefully dialogue. And if all goes well, perhaps we can come to some sense of unity or peace. And of course, we can start this practice with ourselves. As I said already, cultivating empathy involves work. We can start this work by recognizing that our own problems or pain have root causes. They may be outside of our personal sphere, such as societal or structural issues or grounded in trauma in our family line. But if we use our sociological imagination, we can see our conditioning and where it has arisen from and quite possibly from outside forces well beyond our control. When we learn that if we have these forces acting on us, if we are in fact products of this conditioning, then so are others. And thus we are not alone. And that maybe in itself is the beginning of doing this work for empathy for ourselves and for learning about others. So how do we do it? Our video showed us some great examples, but how do we do it? We can cultivate it within ourselves, but also working with others. Our video was a great model, right? Of how we can do this with children or friends. So first I would say we have to show and share emotions in healthy ways. Be in touch with what we are feeling and share those feelings with others. And then of course, naturally it follows to allow others to share their feelings with us. And when they are sharing their feelings, we recognize and honor those feelings rather than dismiss them or ignore them. This will be made possible if we all learn and practice active listening, being fully present with someone and listening for understanding, not for responding, is really important. 
we must learn to companion. When we are being an empathic presence, we are truly with someone. We are not trying to solve their problems. This doesn't mean, this also means we are not giving them advice unless they ask for it. We should see ourselves more as side-by-side -side companions than fixers. Furthermore, we as the adult members of 4th U must model caring for children and for others. In our RE spaces and beyond, we can discuss ethical dilemmas with children, moral dilemmas as Reverend Nate talks about, so that we can engage their sociological imagination to see either themselves in a situation or begin to see how the pieces of this big puzzle fit together. Finally, as we embark on this embark on this ongoing journey of cultivating empathy, may we remember the charge given to us by the UUA Commission on Institutional Change to widen our circle of concern. Especially given that research that about empathy and circling the wagons and sticking with who you know, this seems really important to me, widening our circle of concern. Be aware of how we are treating others, who we are including or excluding. Practice our empathy by giving voice and attention to those who have been long marginalized in our faith. Cultivating empathy takes effort, but if we want to love a better world into being, I believe it is worth it. So may we all remember that we are not alone. May we engage our sociological imagination to cultivate empathy. And may we practice true empathy by listening and feeling and wondering. May it be so. Amen. Reverend Leonisa, it's great. Once again, I, I'm loving this chance to get to sit down like every other week. This has been, this has been great. And I really love today's message. I'm glad. I, uh, I'm so, I really love this aspect of what we do at 4th U. I think these conversations are great. And I'm so happy that I get to have them with you each time. So. You know, well, I, I resisted the urge there to say something about like that this sermon made me feel it really empathetic or I feel really empathetic <laughs> towards your sermon. I, I do feel empathetic towards your sermon writing process. Yes, <laughs> well, right, right. But the, yeah, it was interesting to write this one. Um, like as I, well, I even say right in the sermon that I started early and then I, the world, like there was just so much bad stuff and I was just feeling it so strongly and I just felt so unable to like put words together, right? Like I just was sort of um, quieted or derailed. I don't know if that's the right word. So my process, yeah, I, I had to have some sense of uh, compassion for myself, like that this sermon is not going to be done uh, in the timeline you originally thought. Um, and it started months ago. That's why it was so... Like I've had the idea bubbling around because it started a few, um, I want to say almost three months, no, two and a half months ago or so. My daughter was reading some interesting articles in her sociology, her college sociology course and said, oh, mom, you should read this one, this one about empathy and the sociological imagination. It sounds like your piece said stuff, like you'll like it. 
and she sent it. I read it. And I was like, oh yeah, I should totally do a sermon on this. This is a really uh, interesting way of thinking about empathy. And that was when I started just doing more and more research and uncovering things. And then, um, and then, uh, and then I was paused for a little while, but, but the point was there is that the, uh, so yeah, I was looking mostly at scientific research on uh, empathy, right? So there's the psychologist perspective, a sociological perspective, um, and there's research kind of, and, and, and I use Brene Brown because she's a sociologist and a monster researcher, right? And I was looking at her, her latest book, The Atlas of the Heart, um, I, I got for my birthday or something. And, and I was looking at how she was defining compassion and empathy and then putting that in conversation with these more, well, she's pretty clinical, but she writes for the masses as it were, right? And, and then I was looking at these other um, research-based things and I was just like, this makes so much sense. And it's so, it's a, it was a different way of kind of talking about empathy because right when we were entering the room, you and I were talking about how we tend to think of it about as people who are empathic or empaths who feel things. And to recognize that empathy is something that we have to learn and that we have to cultivate in other people through a learning process, I think is a really uh, important way to have a conversation about it. I have to admit, though, that when you said that Renee Brown is a monster researcher, I suddenly just pictured her like actually like being a person who like studies, you know, monsters. Monsters. Like, oh, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Brene except Brene Brown, like uh, sitting around studying monsters. Um, yeah. I often use monster like the piano player I play with. I often call Jesse a monster piano player. I'm like, I'm not sure everybody knows what I'm talking about here. Right. The, but yeah. The the '90s superlative that I want to bring back um, is uh, "You're the bomb." dot com. Remember that one? Um, I will not help you bring that back. <laughs> is that not? It doesn't mesh with your peace education. It doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah, I don't. I, maybe I don't remember it. What was I doing in that? Well, that's another conversation. Why I don't I mean, remember. To be fair, that. I was you know young and on the playground. It was probably a very different context. That was it, very different than when you were adulting, as it were, which is another word that doesn't need to have a place. Anyway, let's bring it back, shall we? Because we are known to do. I was this. just feeling empathetic towards some of my other experiences. <laughs> yeah, I'm just gonna. How many times? Can we know, say leave, empathy? Leave in the comments below. How many times you counted us saying the word empathy? Right. Uh, <laughs> But well, and then, you know, so, you know, I was joking about having an empathy towards your sermon writing process, but I can't say I had any that, that took three months to write. Um, so that might be a, a record breaker. <laughs> right. But then you had inspiration strike in the form of a lightsaber. Exactly. Or a, light, a lightsaber wielding eight-year-old. A lightsaber wielding eight-year-old. So what happened is, um, and we talked, I guess it was last week when we were talking, two weeks ago with uh, you, Ben, and I having this conversation about sermon writing, right? So. I was able to start putting the pieces together and but then not get very far in the how I make this a thing. Um, and then I was having a wonderful conversation with uh, your offspring and our uh, member of our fourth you community, Jude, eight year old lightsaber wielding cat. And um, we started talking about Jedi's like, you know, and just like we were talking about our favorite uh, Star Wars movies and aspects of it. And then we Je Jude mentioned the Jedi piece about like the Jedi's having this sense of doing the right thing, right? Of who they protected, how they welcomed everyone in, right? I think even Jude was saying like, Jedi's don't say, you're the wrong skin color, you can't be a Jedi, I think was one of his lines, which I thought I was like, yeah, Jude, the Jedi's don't do that. That's awesome, <laughs> right? 
And so after the Jedi conversation, because one of the questions I was coming back to and why I was stuck is because I'm watching a despot invade a sovereign nation. I'm watching a despot in Texas tell trans children they can't be who they are. I'm watching just the regular news about people of color, indigenous people, and, and you know everyone who is not part of the dominant construct being murdered, derailed, uh, uh, not derailed, but well, derailed maybe in their, in their mission to have their inherent worth and dignity honored, right? And so all that's in there. And I thought, so why are some people like that? You know, and you know, and so Jude's Jedi comment really helped me answer, like, or think about that question, right? Like, so we have this model in pop culture of an entire group of people who fight for good and justice. And then Jude says, and some Jedi's turned to the dark side. And I was like, yes, some of them like, and again, so it was like taking this idea I already had about empathy and the idea of the sociological imagination, which invites us to look at individuals contextually. And so I, you know, I was thinking, yeah, like some people who actually do know the right thing to do choose to join the Sith, right? Or choose to act like, you know, Darth Vader and others, or, or we aren't getting that granular, but that's the concept. And I, you know, and you're, you know, I, I guess as a peace educator and a parent or, um, you know, you just think so much about how do we teach our children right from wrong, how to care about others, how it's not all about you, right? Like, you know, to get away from that selfishness and, um, and to have this sort of moral compass, right? Like the Jedi have a very clear moral compass and a moral grounding and a, even, a, you know, some could say a theological grounding probably, right? We wanted to get into that. And you, you mentioned earlier how we were discussing um, like the, some of the cultural ideas around empaths and it was actually a little bit of a, of a meme. Uh, I mean, at least it was on TikTok and probably made it into some other places, at least by now, um, but of people were kind of poking fun at the people who like so proudly call themselves empaths, but like who are just totally like not caring about the other person's feelings while they, you know, like, or like, you know, it'll just be like, I mean, maybe it was like a clip from Star Wars, like, you know, where Anakin is turning evil and like, and then it'll be like me, an empath, sensing that he isn't feeling very good about things. Uh, <laughs> I missed that one, but that's perfect because, you know, it's, we forget that there's an actionable component to empathy. It's not just, and I even start, you know, the sermon saying that like, I, I'm a person who feels deeply, right? Like I, I get the sense you're a person who feels deeply. I know lots of people, my kid feels deeply, right? Like there are lots of us and, but it's very different to like, say, oh, I feel that. But if you're not actively listening or engaging and honoring the other person's feelings and then saying, what do I do to alleviate that? Not by like giving advice or fixing the situation, but by companioning that person or then looking for the ways to address structural issues that cause that kind of suffering, right? Like it's, it's not, I don't know. I guess that's a, that's a, I'll have to search out that meme, right? That, but it's an interesting thought to just, just because you can, you know, think you feel what someone's feeling. You, there's so many people who just jump to let's fix that, or let me answer that, or let me um, tell you what's wrong, or let me, uh, uh, and 
yeah there's there's um what's the word i'm looking for i don't know it's a it's a it's a way of listening and reflecting back on other people being fully like i said already being fully present to their pain you have to be able to do both because i mean if you don't then empathy can really turn into a very manipulative tactic right or and people will you know basically use it as a way to like feel superior over others like that's yeah that's not good empathy yeah and that's what's interesting when i was doing more of my um sorry sorry um doing more of my uh research too is like one of the uh challenges or you know problems with empathy is that this researcher found that though you know the if we when we apply empathic skills or we are empathic we tend to have more empathy towards people who are like us so it actually to your point and to could be a a divisive tool in some way like in the sense like so so the notion is that we take compassion we put it into i guess action or or take it a step deeper into empathy yet if we use it to like circle the wagons to just care about who's like us i only have empathy for people whom i can completely relate to right well then well okay that's a good thing at least it's something right but then what do we do about the people who are not like us who we'll never meet who we don't know and then we interact with we can't see their perspective i mean that's the mess our world is in that we are too too mired in um uh echo chambers right sound bubbles of and empathy is a can be a tool of that to making sure we only just stick with uh, stick with your own kind like in uh west side story right but that's a problem right well and you know i like that has me thinking about how oftentimes um i'm trying to figure out how to how to phrase this but the way that like our empathy will be guided by like the media which we consume whether that's news or like other things um like you know like we'll hear about like one case of police violence and you know not the thousands of other instances of police violence against people of color that that go unreported that you know suffer in silence um or but then even related to that i I was thinking about i saw um a clip on the line of there was a, a reporter talking about the conflict uh, in Ukraine. Um, and he said something along the lines, of, and he even like said, I gotta make sure I say this right so I don't mess it up or something like that. But he, he says something along the lines of, you know, this is the first time we've had a war in like a civilized country um, effectively, you know? So, yeah. you know, it's, <laughs> but let's not forget about all those wars that have been waged in these countries that um, they chose not to, to show us. Uh, as well. Yeah, it's I think that's where the perspective taking is really key, right? Like, so if you get all your information from only one media source or one angle of a media source, it's very easy for you to generate empathy for a people group of people who think like you, right? Or to become a, I'm on the side of the blue lives matter, right? Which is, you know, to me, frankly, an absurd argument, right? Versus like saying like, actually people who have a job shouldn't actively be killing people, right? There's a, right, it's a completely different concept. So where you get your information from, right will help well it may not cultivate empathy or if it does it may actually serve to just say i only care about people who think and look like me right and so and then and so that sociological imagination um is the step that says 
each one of these conflicts or individuals, whatever, have a context, right? We cannot view it just by what the media is saying or what even what the person is saying, right? Someone might be saying something incredibly hateful. And of course, as I say in my sermon, right, no one gets a free pass for being horrible or right or or um, degrading or whatever, right? But if we take or and I should say, and we take a step back, though, and try to look at what in the Buddhists call the recognition that we are the products of our conditioning, right? Like we have personal histories, we have contextual, there are structural issues at play, right? So I think a lot of times people see these issues and cannot see structural racism, right? They don't see structural oppression, oppression. So they see it as one case and say, oh, that they'll take the perspective let's say of the police officer oh he was out had a fight or he was in a bad mood or blah blah blah. but they can't take the perspective of the person being uh, injured or killed because they can't expand it to the larger sociological uh, um systemic structures at play that set up this hierarchical thinking and this inequality right of why these actions are not okay in in the continuing quest of get get Reverend Leanies on, on TikTok. This is our hashtag for the video. Hashtag um, Reverend Leanies on TikTok. We've um, <laughs> already mentioned it once, but then, you know, you and I actually were talking on Friday uh, because I got involved in a whole TikTok kerfuffle uh, around someone who was effectively pretending to be Taylor Swift, even though now they're like, well, I, the account was called absolutely not Taylor Swift. Of course I was never, but effectively the, the idea had become on TikTok that this was a secret account and the people who were followed were going to get invites to you know special things and um you know it was so it was all of this and um uh, a group of friends discovered who the person was and discovered that the intention had been to, to poke fun at people and to and to hurt people and um but then as, as a group uh, we decided to you know as you were talking about um pursue it in a different way besides just dragging them publicly and being like hey here's all this info about this person Instead, we confronted and we posted about it and explained what happened, but we did not leak information. You know, you, you, we, we have to imagine new and better ways of doing things. Like we can't just keep going with these old ways that just focus on harming others. Absolutely, and you know, so and I appreciate that, right? Because the common answer on social media, which is why so many people are like, "Oh, it's the worst." And you know, I have moments too. Where I'm like, "Ugh," right? Because we just do the trolling thing or the calling people out, and it's like, then you have no. But there's, you know, and maybe the context is there, but maybe it's not. Maybe there we like, but that doesn't breed dialogue. That's just a, I'm going to just shut you down or I'm going to shame you, right? And we have so to cultivate the space for, exactly. for this vulnerability for creativity, right? And that's where the empathic muscle gets worked as well, right? Like how to cultivate an, a, a practice of listening and hearing people's feelings so that we can respond to their feelings, not with what you already have in your head because you've been thinking about it for two days or whatever, right? And so I think in so many spaces, we have the opportunity and the challenge to figure out how do we cultivate empathy? How do we work with our children? How do we work with our peers, right? How do we reprogram, for lack of a better word, or decondition adults who, I don't don't flex their empathy muscle, right? Who you know, I might even use the language as like, oh, I have compassion, but then act in a completely, you know, harmful way, right? Like it's like, 
it's it, they have to go hand in hand, right? We if we feel and we are compassionate, then we have to work on that empathy muscle to be able to take the perspective of someone else to actually enter into a dialogue so that we can create change and solutions. Otherwise, we're just, you know, it's like the butter battle book, right? Like higher, higher, who's, you know, it, it just, things just escalate or they shut down completely. Lenisa, thanks as always for, I, I, I truly do love these chances for us to sit down and chat, you know, like sometimes I'm tempted that we should just like call like three or four times throughout the week and just chat And just have to record our brain droppings and see where it takes us, right? We'll start recording like, you know, two hour long versions of this. It's just me and, <laughs> and you. Yeah, because I think there's a real audience for that, Ember. Let's hey, work on that. If, if, if you're out there watching or listening to this and you are part of that audience that would listen to a two hour version of us diving into <laughs> one of Reverend Lenius's sermons, then leave a comment and I'll make it happen. All right, then. Hashtag goals. <laughs> Oh my God, that was so dorky. I can't believe I said that. That's all right. We'll end on that note. <laughs> um, thank you as always to also to all of our listeners. Mm -hmm.